Welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast. Today on the show, we have Mike DeKerchi. He served on the music faculty at Cedarville for 37 years. He helped shape the music department into a nationally acclaimed program, founded the jazz and symphonic bands, developed the college pep band, and wrote the Cedarville Fight Song. Even though his accomplishments are remarkable, Mike will quickly point to the one who made it all possible, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to his story of transformation now. Thank you, Sarah, and welcome back to our faithful listeners of the Cedarville Stories podcast. Today is our 40th podcast, and it's been a delight to be able to share with you the various stories of people's lives that have been impacted by Cedarville University. Today's podcast is no exception. Joining me today is Mike DeKerchi, a longtime music faculty member who has been described as Cedarville royalty and a trophy of God's grace by his former colleagues. We'll learn more about that in the podcast. Mike served on the faculty for 37 years and in the process helped to shape the university's music department into a nationally acclaimed program. He founded the jazz and symphonic bands, developed the most respected small college pep band in Ohio, and he created Cedarville's current fight song. For his accomplishments with the pep band, he was inducted into the Cedarville Athletic Hall of Fame in 2016. Thanks for joining me, Mike. It's great to talk to a Hall of Famer. I count it an honor to spend time with you today. And as you know, I consider you a friend. Thanks for joining me. Well, Mark, I consider you a friend as well. And I thank you for doing these podcasts. I'm just uh, privileged and uh, very uh, happy to be able to share with you some things today. So thanks for inviting. Great to have you. And there are many topics that I want to talk with you about today, Mike, including your spiritual journey which clearly demonstrates why former colleagues consider you a trophy of God's grace. But before we get there, I'm interested in learning more about the story that brought you to Cedarville University. I believe this story has Dr. Paul Dixon's fingerprints all over it. Can you share that story with us? I'd be happy to. As new believers, uh, my wife and I were encouraged by our pastor there in the Detroit area to attend a Bible conference. He thought it would be good for us in our spiritual development. And God was at work in our lives, showing us that he wanted us to do full-time work of some sort in his kingdom. Well, we signed up for a place called Gullet Bible Conference up there in Hickory Corners, Michigan, near Battle Creek. Yep. And we picked it because uh, Dr. John Whitcomb was the speaker for the week. He was from Grace Theological Seminary, a real scholar. And the, the other speaker was Dr. Paul Dixon, who I had never heard of nor had I ever met him. Uh, so we went there, and uh, I was pretty convinced that uh, Dr. Wickham and I had a good bond, and I would probably go to Grace Theological Seminary and study to be a minister and get an MDiv and help them with their music program. Well, Paul Dixon got to know us a little bit that week, and uh, he asked my wife off to the side, uh, would your husband be interested in teaching music theory at a Christian college? She came back to me after she had told him I could teach anything. <laughs> That's what wives are for, right? And I said, yeah. oh, no, I don't really want to teach music theory. Well, he, he hung around. And then one day at um, dinner, he came up to me and said, well, would you be happy to just share a resume with me? And I said, okay. And I took out a, uh, a napkin and a big Sharpie pen. <laughs> 
And I don't know what I wrote down. I wrote a bunch of things. They were all smeared up and I folded it and said, here you go, buddy. <laughs> and he put it in his uh, pocket and said, thank you. And believe it or not, about a couple of days later, I got a phone call from Dave Matson, who was the head of the music department, asking me if I'd be interested in being a band director at Cedarville, as long as I didn't play trumpet and, and if I had some public school experience. Well, they already had a very good trumpet player and they didn't need another one. And of course, I had taught in public school for eight years. And God was in this in a big time way, because uh, within a week, we had sold our house and we're on our way to Cedarville, Ohio. Amazing, huh? And uh, I, I probably should never give a, uh, a workshop on how to write a resume. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think maybe perhaps that story is a reason why Jeff Reap has never had you talk about building a resume to students because uh, it's just not the way it's not the way to do it but it worked and that speaks as you said to that God was in it in a big way absolutely I was also interested in in hearing that potentially if he had gone to Grace Seminary our paths could have crossed there because I went to college over there so we may have been on that campus together instead of Cedarville but glad we've both been at Cedarville so when you joined the faculty you connected with some great faculty in the music department. I, I think of Charlie Pennard, Chuck Clevenger, ultimately Jim Coleman, who was a classmate of mine at Grace. What are some lessons that you learned from working with these great musicians and individuals? Well, Chuck Clevenger, for one, is a multi-talented fellow. Uh, you know, he's a great painter and he's a great yep. musician. And I always admired his creativity. And we, we did a lot of things together, including Brass and Ivory, where he played piano and I did horn stuff. And, uh, that was a lot of fun. I uh, consider all three of these guys good friends. Charlie Pernard is the consummate professional. He uh, plays on the highest level of uh, trumpet. And he's also one of the most humorous, funny guys I've ever met. He's made me laugh more than anybody in the world. We've had some great times together. And then Jim Coleman perhaps has become one of my very closest friends. He and his personality and my personality just mesh really together. And we did a lot of things together. He's got a dry sense of humor, and I have a, uh, well, I have a sense of humor. <laughs> At any rate, uh, all three of those guys uh, have had a good influence in my life, and hopefully I've had a good influence in theirs as well. Yeah, you guys are all so talented, and in the short time that I've been with you at Cedarville, uh, I've, I've learned a lot from you guys too, and I think of Charlie Pennard, how, how gifted he is. You mentioned that in the trumpet and playing for the Dayton Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah. What surprised me is just how well-versed he is in other things. You know, he's, he's knowledgeable in sports, even though he picks the wrong teams. He's gifted in golf. I, I'm just impressed with the well-roundedness of the guys that you worked with, including yourself. Chuck Clevenger, when I was talking to him about this podcast, he commented to me, and I quote, everything Mike touched was perfect. So I'm interested in knowing what drove you to doing your work with excellence? Well, when I, when I became a Christian, my life turned around dramatically. Uh, when I repented of my sins, and there were many of those, and put my faith mm -hmm. in Christ, I became a new creation. I didn't really want to mirror the life I had had before. So I was intent on doing everything, as the Bible says, decently and in order. And uh, that verse that says, do all to the glory of God, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that really impressed me. And I took that as my credo for doing all the work I did at Cedarville and churches I had worked with. And uh, it just became, I think, the best way to live the Christian life. How did your students respond to you pushing them 
to even heights where they thought maybe they couldn't even achieve? I think that uh, my approach to at least musical ensembles was was always the same in, in, in that I like to prepare a good concert, but I also like to do songs and pieces and compositions that the students enjoyed. But you always needed to challenge them and push them to just a couple of steps beyond what they thought they could do. So the difficulty of the music and the, uh, the history of the music was very important uh, to challenge them. And I think students, especially at the collegiate level, well, actually at all levels, really like a good challenge. And it's almost like you dare them to, uh, to, to grab that musical moment. And I've experienced a lot of those where they have played better than I ever thought they would. So in talking with you and others, I learned of a story that involved you and Chuck Clevenger. You guys were in Chicago. You were, you were at a conference. I think you're the president of the organization. And one of your former students was house-sitting for some individuals who had a mansion in Chicago. And this student wanted to show you and Chuck the mansion. But there was an interesting development that happened that speaks to you, who you are now, as well as who you used to be. Can you share that story with us? Chuck has never let me forget that story. Yes, we were <laughs> in Chicago, and um, he attended the um, Christian Instrumental Directors Association meeting with me, and I was president of that group at the time. And uh, we had a day off, so we went to Chicago, and there was a former music major who was house-sitting at beautiful mansion on the Miracle Mile there in Chicago along Lake Michigan. And uh, we went to see this mansion, and uh, then we were going to get a bite to eat, you know, some of that famous Chicago pizza. And yep. somehow, uh, she got her keys to the mansion, locked in the house, and the door locked behind her. And she was, you know, a little bit beside herself, because how am I going to get back in here, you know? So I asked Chuck for his credit card, went to the lock, and just kind of maneuvered that credit card a little bit, and opened that door right up, and... Uh, Away she went. And I think security systems are better today than they were back then. Uh, but nonetheless, so. uh, it impressed both her and Chuck, as is evidenced by the fact that Chuck never forgot this, uh, that I had a skill like that in my back pocket. And surely that, uh, yeah, it probably comes from a former life more than, uh, you know, a, a Christian workshop on how to get into a mansion. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you have a credit card? Why did you have to ask Chuck for a credit card? Hey, if it was going to break, it wasn't going to be mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Very good. Oh, thanks for sharing. From hearing that story again, it's obvious that your spiritual journey has had great meaning and impact, and it's obvious to all who know you or knew you. Take some time and, and just share with us your transformational story of how the Lord actually saved you, and walk us through that if you could. Sure. I'm always eager and... Uh honored to be able to share testimony and tell how God worked in my life. It's a bit on the dramatic side, and I'm going to give you more of an abbreviated version because we don't have a couple hours to go into every detail. But my life verse is found in the Bible, of course, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And I experienced that transformation. By the way, everyone who trusts in Christ, whether they're young, old, dramatic, not dramatic, is a walking miracle and has a life message to share. So remember that those who listen, you can share your life story and it will have an impact. That is for sure. I was born and raised in a town called Ossining, New York. 
famous for Sing Sing Prison, the electric yep. chair up the river, and the original big house called the Prisoner, <laughs> Sing Sing. And I was born and raised in a, a Roman Catholic Irish-Italian family. And that might explain a lot about my upbringing. My family was hardworking. They loved me. I wasn't abused or anything like that, but we were, I would say, non-religious, non, we didn't have any relationship uh, with Christ, and we were more cultural Catholics than devout Catholics, except my grandfather, who was a very devout Catholic and never missed a church service at St. Augustine's Church up the hill there in Austin, New York. When I was 16 years old, uh, my dad suddenly died of a heart attack mm. at our home, uh, I witnessed it, and uh, it was a very traumatic thing, to say the least. Impacted my life very much. I realized very early that uh, life was like a vapor, says the Bible. It's here and gone. I did well in high school, uh, but I began drinking when I was 12 years old because I came from a drinking culture and didn't see anything wrong with it. By the time I was in high school, I was drinking quite a bit. And, of course, the lifestyle that went along with that and the bad habits that went along with that were my portion. I joined a little dance band and I hung out with older guys and their habits, which were bad and wretched, became my habits, which were bad and wretched. Mm. Believe it or not, I went to a place called Ann Arbor, Michigan and studied music there at the University of Michigan and got a degree miraculously. Played in the marching band, the jazz band, had a good education, but as an organist would say, all the stops were taken out and I became a daily drinker. I experimented with drugs, uh, marijuana especially, got into all kinds of uh, trouble that I lied my way out of, and uh, I was not very proud of that as I look back on it, but nonetheless, that's what I was in those days. I left Michigan with a degree in hand, went back to New York, taught school for two years in Lakeland, became a bartender and a bouncer. I was making a lot of money, also playing my horn, and probably hundreds and hundreds of dollars a week, and frivolously spent it and lived a riotous, hedonistic life. Mm. Not too long after I had been in New York, in the second year of my return to New York, I was in a van accident. I was driving a van and it went off the road because I was actually passed out behind the wheel. I drank 25 gin and tonics that night. Mm. And knocked down three or four guardrails and stopped from going down a cliff. And I came out of that without a scratch, although the van was totaled. And I realized for the first time in my life that perhaps I was not a social drinker, but a problem drinker. And I started a campaign called You Are Your Own Best Friend. You are your own friend and you can pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Unfortunately, I didn't realize that Jesus was the friend that sticks closer than the brother. And what Jeremiah said about the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? Uh, so God was in, I believe, in my life way back then, leading me to himself. Yeah. And I was uh, offered a job in Plymouth, Michigan, and I thought a geographic cure would be good for me. I took that job. I ended up teaching there six years. And in those six years, I met a wonderful gal who's now my wife of 45 years. Joanne Skiba was her name. And uh, she came to bring me groceries when I was uh, convalescing from a bad case of uh, pneumonia because I had actually burned the candle at both ends again, lived a riotous life again there. Well, she wasn't too impressed with me, I understood. I don't know why. I had two television sets on, one just the picture worked, one just the sound worked. I hadn't shaved in a couple of days, and most <laughs> Italians can grow a mustache in a half an hour, so I'm pretty scruffy. And I had been eating Hall's menthol liptus like they were potato chips and uh, probably smelled like an Egyptian florist shop with all that eucalyptus and 
She wasn't very impressed, but I heard about her non-impressive attitude and I pursued and miraculously, she agreed to go out on a date. And on our first date, she leaned across the table and said, what do you think happens to someone when they die? I never thought of that before. Mm. Kind of bothered me a little bit. I think I spilled coffee on my lap because, uh, you know, who thinks about that stuff? You know, if you want to have some sanctified fun, go to your neighbor, knock on the door and say, hey, John, come on over tonight. We'll have some Pepsi Cola and some potato chips and we'll talk about death and dying. <laughs> right. That doesn't happen. Nobody wants to deal with that. And uh, nope. I was confronted with it. We'll make a very long story short. We fell in love. The chemistry was great, still is. And we got married back in New York. And uh, I drank myself uh, and had a great time dancing and playing music and everything else. Day after we were married, when we went on our honeymoon to Adirondack Mountains, a place called Canada Lake, to see an old friend of mine who was giving us a cabin to stay in. And I offered him a cold beer and he said, oh, I don't drink anymore. I'm an alcoholic. And that very much upset me. It's like, mm. you're an alcoholic. What does that make me? And I kind of bugged him a little bit. And he gave me a pamphlet, 10 questions put out by Alcoholics Anonymous. If you answer yes to three of these, you most likely have a problem. You ever drink in the morning and get rid of a headache? You ever forget what you did the night before? Things like that. And I answered all 10 yes. Wow. So I realized for the first time in my life that I was really a problem drinker yep. going down the wrong road. And here I had a new marriage and I, I wanted to get a start on the right foot. And that was 1974. And that was the last drink I had, June 23rd, 1974. Mm. He recommended strongly because alcohol was such a big part of my life that I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, mm. I went there expecting to find uh, Bowery bums hanging on the wall. and it was really a slice of society. I mean, people from all walks of life. And I found that it really helped me stay sober. And then eventually it led to a quest for spiritual truth. And I discovered that um, there was a book put out by a fellow named Dave Boyer. Someone mm -hmm. told me about this. It was called yep. So Long Joey, Life Story of Dave Boyer, a swing singer, kind of mm -hmm. like Frank Sinatra, Christian version. Yep. Right. And, uh, I ordered that book. and. Um, the day we went to pick up the book, there was a sign downtown Plymouth in the, in the window there that said, tonight in concert, Dave Boyer, Ann Arbor Pioneer High School, Youth for Christ. And man, we went there, sat in the front row, and I was kind of like old stone face sitting there, not yeah. knowing what I was getting into. And he came out and sang, get all excited, go tell everybody that Jesus Christ is king, and he's staring at me. I think, why is that guy looking at me like that? <laughs> he got to the end of his song and he said, get a long mic cord here and I'll just see how some of you who don't look very excited at all stand for the Lord. And I said, oh my goodness, I'm at a holy roller convention. I'm going to be interviewed. <laughs> did he interview you? No, he did not. He backed off. And I can't remember what his next song was, but I was with him on every beat just to keep him away. Yep. Yeah. But he presented that night the claims of Christ, uh, Jesus Christ. And I had never viewed a Christ that way. He was a historical figure, a statue, a martyr, perhaps a good teacher. But the Savior? Wow. Well, at any rate, um, I came under conviction. Sad, mad, glad. I was all, all the emotions I was experiencing. Not long after that concert, my wife ran into a lady at a, uh, a local library. We were invited to go to a family life seminar at a Baptist church in Plymouth, Michigan. I reluctantly agreed to go because I thought they made a reservation for us. 
And it was at that uh, particular seminar that, uh, by the way, I never owned a copy of the Bible and I was extraordinarily impressed with how fast they could find these different books. <laughs> By the time I found a book, uh, they were four or five ahead of me. Right. And the only book I could really understand was the uh, the Italian book, Malachi. But um, <laughs> you'll get that later. <laughs> At any rate, I was very impressed with the pastor. We began going to that church, sitting in the back row this time. And he always would say, I'm available if you'd like to talk. We wow. made an appointment. And in his study, he sealed the deal for us. And we prayed the sinner's prayer and became Christians uh, that day. And it was just a wonderful experience. I haven't been floating on a cloud ever since. I mean, it's a challenge coming from an Irish, Italian, Roman Catholic home to be right. a Christian. And uh, people don't understand that. They think you're in a cult or something. And uh, All right. life changed dramatically. But it's been a great life. And I hope I never get over the fact that I'm saved. Mike, thanks for, thanks for sharing. I never get tired of hearing your testimony. I, I've, I've heard it before. And... It's, it's as meaningful today as it was when you first shared it with me. It makes me think that it's it's worth sharing in a book. Have you ever thought about sharing your story in a book? Uh, well, actually, I've written out my testimony uh, for my family, and I've shared it with them. I've shared it with a lot of cousins and friends. I have never put together a formal book that I've published, although I have written a book of about 90 pages on my life story which includes my testimony, of course. Sure. And then I have a whole book full of stories. If you think the uh, Miracle Mile story is good, you ought to read the uh, 200 other stories of my life that I've had uh, opportunity to enjoy. <laughs> now, this story that you just shared with us has been heard nationally, maybe internationally, through the radio program Unshackled. Is that correct? Correct. Many years ago at Gull Lake Bible Conference again, uh, my wife and I met a family by the name of Malonis. He was an insurance man from Chicago, and we shared testimonies with each other, and he encouraged me to send my story to Unshackled, uh, which I did, and then they took that and dramatized it. And my wife did that several years after I did. My brother-in-law did it. It's been heard around the world. I've gotten notes and messages from people as, as far away as Africa, and of course, Iowa and California, and great. Not too long ago, the um, Unshackled team called me just to make sure I was still living for the Lord so they can keep my uh, program on, which I thought yeah. was good. That is good. To, to close the loop on your spiritual journey, I'm wondering what kind of impact has the Lord used your life in your family's life? Not your children's life, but in your family, siblings and cousins and aunts and uncles. Once our uh, extended family got used to the fact that our salvation experience was real and uh, we had definitely changed and had a new, a new worldview, so to speak, and, and we were new creations in Christ, uh, it took a while, you know, they, they wanted to make sure, I think, uh, whether it was a fad or not. Or, right. Or, we've had the opportunity to lead several cousins, uh, my sister, aunts and uncles to Christ, and uh, it's been quite an experience. Of course, uh, my wife is very evangelistic. She has a real heart for the Jewish people and has uh, continued yeah. to build into that community as well. So. As we record today's podcast, we're still in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. In fact, cases are spiking across the country as we speak. I'm interested in knowing how you and Joanne have been able to deal with this pandemic. I know you're 70 or 71 years of age, so you're in a prime age. 
how are you guys been dealing with uh, this pandemic? Well, we're both in that high risk category. And, and when it first came out, you know, the severity of this thing, uh, naturally, we were, I, I would say, you know, very concerned, uh, maybe even fearful a little bit. Yeah. And uh, we stayed pretty close to home for a long time. Of course, many things were closed as well, like uh, churches, Bible studies, music opportunities. Right. Gasoline was so low and we can't know where to go. <laughs> but uh, maybe right or wrong, as the uh, weeks have gone by and the uh, conflicting communications have swirled around us and uh, you know things have been opened a little bit more, uh, we have enjoyed getting out recent, of recent days. We actually went to a restaurant the other night and have returned to Bible studies in person with people. And now our church is open. But uh, we're still a little cautious about things. We still do the uh, washing your hands and as best we can with social distancing. But uh, interesting times we live in. And, uh, and certainly uh, we want to avoid getting that particular disease. It doesn't sound like it's a good deal when you're too old. No, it doesn't. And uh, I encourage you to be careful. Uh, any uh, new lesson that uh, you've learned through th this pandemic? Yes, I have. Uh, it was extraordinary to me how fast something can happen, mm -hmm. how fast the world can be brought to its knees. Uh, it reminds me of some of the biblical plagues and also right. reminds me that if God wants to get the attention of the world, it can happen real quick. So uh, <laughs> it's just amazing, you know, uh, that it spreads so fast and continues to do so and has really left a lot of people uh, confused. But I hope through this, there'll be a great revival and a lot of people come to Christ because he's the only answer to all this stuff is, is God. You hit it right on because, you know, people are looking for answers, solutions to this pandemic from the government, from health. But I, I really do believe it's a spiritual battle, a spiritual issue. And really, the answer is only God. And uh, the sooner we realize that and embrace that, the better we'll be. Mike, I've enjoyed the conversation. I just have time for a couple more questions. I couldn't let our conversation end without talking with you about being a missionary in Ohio. As a graduate of the University of Michigan, I know you follow Michigan athletics. So my question to you is, do you have any hope that Michigan's football fortunes against the school in Columbus will turn around anytime soon like they were in the 70s and 80s? Well, hope springs eternal, and I suppose every fall I get the hope in my heart that, hey, this is going to be the year uh, that we actually turn the tide and, and compete with them, which we used to do, as you know. Oh, yeah. We, we in fact, have the edge in the overall series, but these last 20 years have not been kind to us. You know, if they do cancel the football season because of the virus, the only good thing I can see about that is we don't have to lose to – Ohio State again. <laughs> I'm really <laughs> sick of losing to Ohio State. So yeah, I'm I'm optimistic, but cautiously optimistic. And of course, uh, you call me a missionary. Yeah, in some respects, I'm a missionary for the University of Michigan. But sometimes yep. it's best to keep it close to the vest because these are uh, very very uh, enthusiastic fans here, and uh, they don't have a lot of love for the Wolverines up north, as you well know. No, and uh, 
For our listeners, that's something Mike and I, we have an affinity for the University of Michigan. Mike, because he's a graduate of the school, and I'm from the state of Michigan, the west part of the state. So that's where my love has come from, Michigan. And being in the Buckeye State for the past 10 years has been a challenge because uh, people know that I follow Michigan, and I'm not as I'm not as cautious as you are. I, I will share it, my interest with others, and I take a lot of heat for it, but uh, it's worth it. Well, being cautious hasn't served me well either because uh, I take a lot of heat for it too, even though I don't uh, overtly come out on a lot of things. But uh, I I would suppose, uh, not trying to be too funny, that uh, I probably have gotten more persecution for being a Michigan fan than being a Christian. I don't know what that tells you, but... (laughs) That's a a sad commentary when uh, sports is more important than, than Jesus. That's right. Uh, it tends to be yeah. the religion of the masses, I suppose. Yep. Yep. Good point. Well, Mike, our, our time is up. So my last question to you, Mike, is something I typically ask people on the podcast, and that's right now, as you are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, in the midst of it, uh, you're home, you're studying the Bible. What's the Lord teaching you right now? Our days are certainly numbered. Uh, you don't know what's down the next highway, uh, you know, as you move through life. And uh, at our age, uh, there's more behind us than there is in front of us. So I think, you know, uh, the biggest thing I'm concentrating on now is that I want to finish well and not mess up with whatever time I've got left. And of course, I want to share Christ with as many people as I can with the time I've got left. That's a great lesson. And I know you will take each day as they come and be faithful to whatever the Lord has for you. I've appreciated you for the last 10 years, getting to know you, and I only wish the best for you and Joanne. Be safe, stay healthy, and stay true to the blue. Amen. Back at you, buddy. Thanks for the interview. Thank you for listening to Cedarville Stories podcast, brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by this conversation, like I was, please share this episode with a friend. If you know of an awesome Cedarville story, share it with us. We would love to showcase how God is at work in the Cedarville family. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory. Mm